Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. We'll spend most of our time from 5 to 11, uh, but last week we began this text, and this week uh, we'll finish it. Philippians uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As I sought to introduce this sermon and this text, I was considering the question, how far was Christ's descent? How far? How big of descent did it take to win our salvation? And therefore, what kind of humility did Christ actually have? And so I thought of ideas like the Mariana Trench uh, that is in the Western Pacific. Uh, It's the place of the two uh, lowest points on planet Earth. In 1960, two gentlemen finally reached the depths of that in a special marine vehicle with such thick walls so it wouldn't be crushed in. In fact, you can go so low underwater, human bones can be crushed. You can get that deep. So I thought of that, and I guess I kind of used it, but I don't want to use it. And then I thought of, People in high places that humbled themselves. Whether it was C.T. Studd, who went as a missionary rather than enjoy a professional sports career. Or you'll see, read about stories where the CEO of a big company is serving his workers. We'll look at stories like that and yet I was reluctant to point to anything because as soon as you try to get your mind in comparison to what Christ has done, 
you feel like you're committing blasphemy. The descent of Christ and in his humility is beyond what our feeble minds can imagine. It's beyond what any other human being could ever do. And the ironic part of this text, if you remember from last week, is this is not Paul deciding, you know what, I want to teach on the incarnation. I want to lay out all about Jesus, who was in the form of God, uh, taking on human flesh. But rather, he uses the incarnation as an illustration of humility. What we looked at last week is what a life worthy of Christ is. If you look at your notes, we ask the question, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? And the main answer to that question is it looks like a life of unity. Christians bound to one another. Arch enemies, Jew and Gentile, reconciled to one another. And the virtue for that to take place, the main virtue is humility from which every other virtue flows from. We're working through Ephesians right now, and we saw that there. The first virtue named before any other virtue was the virtue of humility. And so what Paul is calling the church to is to live in a way worthy of Christ. How ought we to live until we die and go see Christ or until he returns? We also saw that we're to live fearlessly before our opponents. So as he calls Christians to unity at the end of chapter 1 in Philippians, he says, and don't fear your opponents. So the Christian is this unique person who ought to be humbled and full of love but yet, because they bear the image of God himself, have opponents that are in rebellion to God and therefore in rebellion to them. And these Christians who are supposed to, supposed to live a life not only of humility, but a life that doesn't fear man doesn't fear earthly opponents and doesn't fear demonic opposition because they're no Christ, because they understand the reality of what Christ has done for them. And so the life worthy of Christ is a life of humility that brings forth unity. It's fearless before our opponents and it's remembering God's grace towards you in Christ. And you, we see this at the beginning of, chap, beginning of chapter 2. Is there any encouragement in Christ? There is. 
If we're going to live worthy lives, we have to remember. We have to ask ourselves these questions. Is there any comfort from love? Is there any participation in the Spirit? Is there any affection and sympathy? Remember what the Spirit does? The Spirit delivers the love of the Son and the Father to us as the Spirit takes up residency inside of us. We're invited into the love of the Trinity when we're in Christ, which is incredible. And then we ask the second question, what could possibly complete Paul's joy in Christ? That almost sounds like a question we shouldn't ask. What do you mean Paul's joy needs to be completed? Christ didn't complete it? Christ didn't bring it to its ultimate end? What, what, what could bring Paul to the point where he can say his joy in Christ is complete? And we saw the surpri surprising answer in, in verse two, 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So we're back to unity. If you want to complete the Apostle Paul's joy, well, Christians, humble yourselves and love one another. Be unified. Forgive one another. Bear one another Bear with one another in love. Be patient with them. Because there we see Christ's work having its effect on fallen mankind that knew nothing but selfishness. And then he describes the type of life that seems unbelievable. Do nothing from selfish ambition. What? And then he says... Or conceit. So don't do anything selfishly or in pride, with pride. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. To which we have to say, how can we live, <laughs> how can we live like that? So give us some practical advice, Paul. And Paul gives us a surprising answer. Look at what he says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you ask the Apostle Paul, how do I live like it? How do I have the mind of Christ? He says, because you have it. It's yours. You have the mind of Christ as the Holy Spirit has brought about the new birth, has enlightened your eyes to the Word of God, which is the mind of Christ. But it's not just like magic. It's not like you become a Christian and you say, Okay, now I have the mind of Christ and it's working right now. See, the Bible tells us to walk with the Spirit, not according to our flesh. 
The Bible tells us not to quench the Spirit of God. We're called to sow to the Spirit and not to sow to our own flesh, which means that the Christian is in this unique state where the Spirit of the living God lives inside them. The mind of Christ is inside them. And their old self is slowly dying. And so there's a battle within the Christian life. And so to have the mind of Christ is to sow to the Spirit or to walk with the Spirit. Because you can still be selfish, can't you? I can still be prideful, believe it or not. I can be very prideful and selfish. In fact, every morning I need to wake up and remember who I am. That's why the Apostle Paul said I need to die daily. I need to remember Christ is Lord. And so to have the mind of Christ is to listen to Christ to think like he thinks, to go to his word, to pray that the Spirit helps me comprehend the word. And the Bible is powerful to change us when we believe it by faith, not just intellectually. I know most of you can get the right answers to the tests. The Christian life is lived by faith. Reading the same truths you already know again and then asking yourselves, do I believe it? Soul, cling on to the truths in the Scripture. These are God's words for us so that the Christian life is never like coasting. It's never like, okay, now God's done His work of salvation in me, so now I just basically survive until I die. Paul described his life as a fight of faith, as a race that he's seeking to finish, but he hasn't finished yet, but he has his eyes on the goal. So we need to realize that we have the mind of Christ and the way the Spirit works is it presents Christ's humility to us in this text. So if you say, how can I be humble so that I am not selfish, but I love others? Then my marriage can be more unified. Then my relationship with my children can be more unified with my coworkers. My relationships at church can be more unified. Well, what Paul gives us through the Spirit of God, Paul's pen, the Spirit of God carrying him along, he gives us the example of Christ's humility. So let's look at it. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ who though he was in the form of God. Now, 
these next words we got to handle delicately. We need to look at what the words mean. Though he was in the form of God. This speaks of his high position. Though he was is a Greek word that's in the present tense and active voice. And it's a unique word for he was. It's not the normal word for he was. It's a, it's a unique word that is pointing to uh, being identical to something or having the very essence or nature of something. And what we see in this text is it's that of God. That he has the exact nature or essence of God himself. I mean, we read this other places in the New Testament. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God. That word means towards God, like face to face towards God. And the Word was God. So the Word, there, there was someone standing face to face with God the Father. The seraphim are covering their eyes. But there's someone in heaven standing face to face, equal with God. Face to face is, is, is a relationship towards one another. And the word was God. We know that's Jesus because John 1.14 says the word became flesh. We'll talk about that more in a minute. John 17.5, he says in his high priestly prayer, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the high place... Christ had was the glory he shared with the Father before anything was ever created or ever made. And then in verse 24, one of my favorite, one of the most comforting texts, I think, for anyone who's lost loved ones or anyone who's in the process of dying. Jesus prays. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that's believers, not just the apostles, but other believers, that's you and I, if you're trusting in Christ, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He knew the love the Father had for him and while we pray that we would defeat whatever ailment our loved ones have or we have, that's right. It's not wrong. We're called to pray for healing. But it's also to remember that Jesus Christ prayed before you were ever born 
that you would be able to come and see his glory. So either way, our prayers or his prayers are being answered. But the point here is that he, for all eternity, Jesus Christ never had a beginning. He's the eternal son of God, was in the form of God. Who, though he was in the form of God, this word means the essential, unchanging character or true, exact nature of something. It wasn't like he was kind of like God. No, he was in the very form of God. Just like we see in John 1.1. He is God. We're asking ourselves, how far was the descent? We want to know something about humility. We have to understand who he was. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Have you ever studied the stars or the galaxies? Have you ever tried to comprehend a light year? How fast the speed of light travels and then how far that travels in an entire year? Don't quote me on it, but I think if you travel at the speed of light, you can get around the earth maybe like seven times. It's fast. And then you wait a whole year going at that speed. That's one light year. And then you find out how many light years our one galaxy is across? And then how many billions of galaxies they now know there is? And this one who was in the form of God is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Sometimes we wonder if we need his word. <laughs> right? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. So, he, though he was in the form of God, did not, our, it was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, some might read this and say, well, right there, Jesus says he's, he's not God. Well, that's not what that text means at all. What it means is, uh, I think the ESV study Bible said this, I just like the way it said it. Remarkably, Christ did not imagine that having equality with God, which he already possessed, should lead him to hold on to his privileges at all cost. It was not something to be grasped, to be kept and exploited for his own benefit. So comprehend that. He is God. He has all the rights and privileges of God. But Jesus did not look at those rights and privileges and say, I'm going to hold on to those at all cost. I'm going to 
keep my glory up here in all my privileges. I'm going to grasp it. That word grasp means to hold on to tightly or to clinch or uh, It's a word sometimes used for robbery, to grab onto something and not let go. Paul is highlighting the humility of Christ. He has every right to stay face to face with the Father. He has every right to do it. But to choose not to stay there. And to descend, not just away from the Father's face, the Holy Spirit was still speaking the love of the Father to the Son, and the Son back to the Father. Jesus Christ had a relationship in his flesh with God the Father. Not merely to just be separated from being in heaven, face to face with the Father, but to descend to the point where he receives the Father's wrath. That's where our human minds struggle. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. His glory, he didn't tenaciously hold on to it. You see, we know he didn't. That's why he says, there's others. I want him to see it. I want him to see my glory. I want him. But in his humiliation, people looked at Christ and thought they could walk over him. See, they didn't perceive his glory. Even the apostles, they saw his glory to some degree but not fully. He did not lay aside. So this, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. So this word has great controversy in in theological circles. Theological liberals will say, Jesus emptied himself of deity. Well, I'm just here to tell you today, if he emptied himself of deity, his death on the cross can't save you because you sinned against deity. And the one whose blood is shed in your place needs to have the same value of the one who's been offended. So what does it mean, this word, kano, to empty or to pour out. What did he empty himself of? R.C. Sproul says, in the incarnation, the divine nature, so the incarnation, that word describes Jesus taking on human flesh. Sproul says, in the incarnation, the divine nature does not lose his divine attributes. All right? Jesus didn't, quit being God. He, what he says is, he doesn't communicate them to the human side, however, and deify the human nature. 
So Jesus could have communicated all of his attributes over to the human nature so that the human nature wasn't really a human nature. He didn't deify, in a sense, the human nature in that sense. Christ, the king of the universe, who had all privileges, became a human baby with all the limitations, and he set his face towards the cross. He was really a baby. He was really a human baby that, unless was cared for, would starve to death. I mean, you think of all the animals even in the stall, more self-sufficient than Christ. He was really a human being. Now, we know that Jesus did miracles. We know that Jesus, at times in his earthly body, seemed to have omniscience. It seems like as the Father, through the Holy Spirit, gave him those at certain times, in his earthly life, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. Whatever the Father said, he said. Whatever the Father wanted, he did. That's the amazing thing. He lived as a human being in relation to God the same way we need to live. Listening to what the Father says, doing things by, in the power of the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, that's how Christ lived. And so he emptied himself, not of deity, but he didn't grab onto the privileges the way he could have. And then he says, by taking the form of a servant. By taking the form of a servant. Now think of this. To completely remove or eliminate elements of high status or rank by eliminating all privileges or prerogatives associated with such rank is what Jesus did when he emptied himself, according to Stott. To divest one of all the privileges of a high position, he made himself a bondservant, the one position on earth that didn't have rights. The bondservant who was to serve others. This is the position Christ took when he lowered himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being born in the likeness of men. The word became flesh. Being found in human form, He humbled himself. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's how how far. That's how amazing the humility of Christ is. 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory as the glory of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. What if he wasn't God and he was, a divine, he was some sort of spiritual being and he took on human form? Could he be full of grace and truth? No. It's only God himself that can be full of grace, that can have enough grace to save someone like me. So at the end here, rather than try to use my feeble words, let me uh, share some lengthy quotes on the incarnation. Here's the goal. The whole goal, you got to become like a child <laughs> a little bit. The goal is to be amazed. The goal is to sit there with utter shock on your face, mouth open, jaw on the ground, saying, that, that, that humility is humility that has no equal. So J.I. Packer, in this quote, he, he's saying, so what's the mystery of Christianity? Some say, how can one person die for the sins of millions and millions and millions of people and it be a proper atonement? Some people say, well, that's a great mystery. Or he says, you know, another mystery people stumble over is the resurrection. How can someone be dead and then be raised from the dead three days later and then ascend into heaven? There's the mystery. There's the scandal of Christianity. He says the atonement and the resurrection gets all the publicity. And yet that's not the scandal of Christianity. Listen to what he says. The real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian cl claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. That the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny. The second representative head of the race that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was truly and fully divine, was as truly and fully divine as he was human. He says, here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of the persons within the Trin Trinitarian God. So that's a mystery. One God, three persons. Here's the second mystery. The union of Godhead and manhood in the one person of Jesus, the doctrine of the incarnation. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest, most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. 
God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like every other child. There is no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. All right? This is still Packer. Think about it. If Jesus really was the God-man, if he really was, if he really was both perfect God and perfect man, then it shouldn't surprise us that his death was sufficient to atone for the sins of all his people. See what he's saying? He says that mystery should go away. How can one man, I remember Paul Washer standing up before a bunch of college students saying in, in, in a real arrogant way, how can one man die for the sins of all these people? That's not fair. And Paul Washer says, because you don't know who that one man was. You don't know who that one man is. That one man is worth more than everything combined. That one man is divine. That's how his death can pay for the sins of all men. And so he says, then it shouldn't surprise us that his death was sufficient to atone for the sins of all his people. Or that the immortal God should rise from the dead. Why? Because Jesus Christ was truly God. How could his blood not be of infinite value? How could the author of life not break free from the cords of death? This means that the greater mystery behind all these wonderful truths is the mystery of his incarnation. The incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else the New Testament uh, contains, close quote. If you don't understand Christmas, if you don't understand the incarnation of Christ, then you can't understand the rest of Christian doctrine. We needed the God-man. I said close quote, but there's a little bit more from Packer. The Christmas message is that there is hope for ruined humanity, hope for pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will ever hear. And then he says, we talk glibly of the, Christ, of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. But what we have said makes clear that the phrase should be in fact, that the phrase should in fact carry tremendous weight and meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sake became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself 
ought to be the mark of every Christian all year round. He's essentially saying the Christmas spirit ought to be a humble spirit. It ought to be a spirit of giving upon oneself for the good of another. A couple more quotes, not nearly as long. As we considered the downward trek of Christ from glory, you think, how could he be born in more humble means? Really? In some cold cavern or cave, they think, with animals put in a feeding trough, didn't own his own land. Not only that, humbles himself by taking sin on himself, bearing the wrath of God. St. Augustine of Hippo or Augustine, however you say it, here's what he says on the incarnation. Now track with me. I know we're at the end of the sermon. This is worth it. Man's maker was made man. That he... Ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger. That the fountain thirst. The light sleep. The way be tired on his journey. That truth might be accused of false witness. That the teacher be beaten with whips that the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. See Augustine's purpose there? He's showing you the spectrum. How far? How far? How humble? How selfless do you want me to be for the sake of love? God. We get pointed to the incarnation of Christ. Last one, R.G. Lee says this, Christ, who in eternity rested, uh, our Christ who in e- let me start over, Christ who in eternity rested motherless upon a father's bosom, and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom clasping the ancient of days who would become the infant of days. What deep descent. And then he says, from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from the worship or from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. He was born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling claws of poverty, No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who knows all places. Oh, the deep 
humiliation of the creator, born of the creature, woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy because we cannot ascend to him. He descends to us. And that's the key. In his descent, in the lowest place, was the dawn of mercy. Humility might sound tough, but out of humility, every good thing comes. And so as Christ got that low, here's what the Father did. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus willingly comes down and gets as low as he can get, and God the Father says, let me take him, and let me put him above every name that's in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Every intelligible creature, every maid, will bow knee to Lord Jesus Christ. It'll either be in worship or in rebellion with bitterness in heart. Every knee will admit that Jesus Christ is the greatest, that he's the highest. So really, we all have a choice. By God's grace, you're still sucking air. You're still here. And you could see him for the glory that is him and bow to him and trust him and cling to him and say that's the only way my sins can be forgiven. You bow to him though. His life is your life. He says humility and unity. And if you want to remain king and you want to remain in charge of your life, it won't last long. You will bow. So bow now. Look at the love of God. Look at the mercy of God. Look at the humility of Christ in winning redemption for sinners. He is Lord. You can't get away from him. You don't want to get away from him. He's your only hope. He is life. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The dawn of mercy is from the lowest place. And Paul says, you want to complete my joy? You want to complete my joy, church? Humble yourselves. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Be of one mind. It's yours in Christ. It's yours in Christ. 